You're listening to Group, a podcast about mental illness and mental health. This is the show for the worriers. I created this whole new mental attitude. It's called a nervous breakdown. The germaphobes. Oh God, they're all sick. (laughs) They're all diseased. And the depressives. Everything hurts and I'm dying. To those who are having a hard day, we've got some suggestions to make it better. I saw an auto relationship therapist and it actually helped me a lot. To those who are feeling out of sorts, we're here to offer some encouragement. You're allowed to make a scene. You're allowed to scream for joy. You're allowed to complain. You're allowed to cry. You're allowed to love people. You're allowed to hug people. Our goal is to tell your stories, to make you laugh, and to give you an audio hug through your earbuds. I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas. I'm an anxious person. And I'm here with science journalist Ian Chant. Also an anxious person. Hi, Ian. Hi. How is your anxiety level going as you're prepping for your big cross-country move? Actually pretty low right now. Uh, A lot of things look like they're sort of falling into place, but also all the things that look like they're falling into place don't have like signed documents attached to them um, so I'm I'm in that kind of like it feels like the last lap around around the anxiety track okay cool well that's that's great that you can see like an an end to that and then your anxiety isn't 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 too high currently yeah this is this is me knocking on wood by the way <laughs> So um, today we are going to be talking about anxiety. Uh, group is going to be focusing entirely on one branch of it, of the beautiful tree that is anxiety. Um, we're going to be talking the spanning oak of, yes. a, of anxiousness. Yes, of all of the all of the different various branches. We're going to be talking about obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. There's sort of a misconception I feel like about OCD. Um, people refer to it as like a synonym for like somebody who's a little bit anal or needs things like just so or whatever you know what I mean I I think it's one of those things that like it feels safe to sort of throw around Mm -hmm. um because you you see a lot of of sort of representations of extremely varying quality in pop culture yes uh and and I think it's it's also even more than that I'd say you have a lot of that bit where like Oh, I'm so OCD. Yes. Like, like, and, and sort of people like doing this cutesy self-diagnosis of like, oh my god, oh, I have to make my bed every morning. Yeah, I'm exactly. So Which is not a it's tidiness. <laughs> it, it feels like a, a condition that's been made kind of safe to be more flip about than I think we really should. Yeah, um, I mean, you, you wouldn't necessarily say that about some other psychological disorders. Like, oh my god, I'm so, <laughs> I'm, I'm so schizophrenic. Well, I guess, I guess those are also appropriate too. Yeah, but, but, but like, like, like you don't see someone like like cut in line at the at the laundromat or something. You know, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just such a sociopath. <laughs> it feels like one of those things that's like, like there's a little carte blanche to like play with it, and I think that is part of that is because. It's. It seems like such a fuzzy definition. Yeah, uh, it's you know much more complex psychological condition. We will get into that in full. But first, I want to introduce who we're going to be talking to. Uh, we're going to be speaking with two different individuals about their very different experiences with OCD. 
Everywhere I went, I thought it was murdering people. It never turned into like, thank God, like a germ thing with me though. That's one thing that's never happened. It always had to do with my cleanliness and other people's germs. Like washing your hands 17 times was the most important thing that I could do. And we'll hear from an expert in the clinical treatment of the disorder. I think of the compulsions almost as like the oxygen supply for the obsessions. And if you cut off the compulsions, the obsessions eventually die off. And I'll share how my own brain has incorporated obsessive compulsive tendencies into this lovely mess of anxiety and weirdness that's going on in there. So, <laughs> so stick with us. <laughs> it's, it's a rich jambalaya. So first I want to, I want to lay some groundwork. So OCD is, you know, as I was saying at the top, an anxiety disorder. And we touched on some of the other anxiety disorders uh, in previous episodes. So, you know, what I have is generalized anxiety disorder, which is like the worry wart sort of thing. Um, we also talked about body focused repetitive behaviors in the March episode, which was, you know, the trichotillomania, the hair pulling and um, hair pulling, skin yeah, picking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then we talked about phobias and we talked a little bit about panic disorder. But it's interesting, there, there's, some, there's some research on why certain people get OCD, this specific anxiety disorder. We don't know exactly what causes it, but there's definitely a strong genetic component. Mm. And, and the brain chemistry, actually, of people with OCD is unique. So we had a, a reporter go and interview Dr. Sarah Parker at the Reed Center, which is a treatment center for people with anxiety disorders, um, and they specialize in a certain type of therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. So I'm going to let her explain what's going on with this unique brain structure. There's some pretty good evidence to suggest that there is some different brain chemistry that occurs among people who have OCD. There's essentially some differences in this um, network in the brain that connects the thalamus and the prefrontal cortex and the striatum. So the network in which it occurs, it's part of our anxiety system, anxiety and disgust. And so when these obsessions occur, they bring up very strong feelings of anxiety and disgust. OCD has these two major components to it, obsessions and compulsions. So an obsession is a reoccurring intrusive thought or a mental image or, or some sort of impulse that's, that's really distressing to the person who's experiencing it. Um, and they'll usually have certain themes to it because of where the imbalances are in the brain. Hmm. So um, here's Dr. Parker again. Because this network, it goes through this like one area of the brain, the themes are things like contamination is a big theme. People feeling concerned about germs or being contaminated even... Sometimes we talk about contamination in terms of germs, but sometimes we talk about it in terms of like almost like a metaphysical contamination. What I mean by that is like if I if I don't enter this building in, in a way that feels right, the building will be contaminated. Like it will be contaminated with almost like a bad feeling. There are issues with often broadly categorized as like uh, aggressive thoughts or taboo thoughts. These uh, tend to be things like uh, harming other people that could be physically or sexually or thoughts like I'm gonna, going to start saying things that are totally inappropriate or I'm having thoughts that are very um, contrary to my religious beliefs. So they're these thoughts that feel like they're very aggressive um, and are hard to shake. The other major category that they tend to fall in are, are concerns about symmetry. So feeling like things have to be like just so, arranged just so. But those are kind of the three main categories and there's, all, there's like other categories as well. 
if you're not a very anxious person, which, you know, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of the listeners are anxious, but maybe. <laughs> I, I, th- I think, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, and we don't have great numbers on this, but uh-huh. I feel like our, our listenership, if, if you're checking into this show regularly, it'd be hard to see you lower than a four, uh-huh. like on a, on a one to 10 scale. Maybe there's a bunch of people who are like twos and threes who just like really feeling normal. Yeah. Listening to this and just being like, wow, I'm, I'm just super chill. Man, but, other people have problems. <laughs> <laughs> but um, normals have problems too, Ian. If you're a non-anxious person listening, it might be hard for you to, to relate the stress that these thoughts cause. So we asked Dr. Parker to break it down for you, like what what this anxiety feels like. Imagine that you're running late for a really, really important meeting. You know, maybe you're, you're on your way to a college interview or maybe you are on the way to a job interview or an important presentation and you're running a bit late and you're in your car and you're desperate to get there. Um, basically what's happening in that situation is that your anxiety system is really turned, you know, it's just, your anxiety system is on full full blast, right? And anxiety has a lot of effects on our body. It's supposed to, because our anxiety system is what kept us alive for millions of years. The thing that people are often most aware of are changes in their um, chest, like in terms of like how fast their heart is breathing or how difficult it is to breathe. Or um, they might notice like changes in their digestive system, like their stomach might feel like a pit in their stomach, or they might feel like other GI types of distress. They might feel like a lot of energy in their limbs, like a lot of tingling or energy or tension in their limbs. But also another thing that happens is that anxiety is very good at directing our attention. So if you're driving this car and you're really intent on getting this meeting, you know, you're not looking around at the trees or appreciating the beauty of the scenery you're driving through. Like, you are focused on the road, and you're focused on the cars in front of you, and you're focused on the fact that they're driving slow. You are just hyper-focused on the thing that's making you anxious, this traffic in the way of you trying to get to your meeting. And this is what happens in OCD. People experience, like, tremendous physiological arousal. Those are all those symptoms I was talking about with feeling all that energy in your body and feeling, like, lots of heart racing and difficulty breathing. But also just that feeling of like not being able to focus on anything else because the anxiety is telling you, you've got to solve this problem. You have to figure this out. You have to make this feeling go away. And I don't know if you've ever been a passenger in a car driven by somebody in this situation, but you might notice that they're kind of irritable because, you know, you might be saying like, oh, what should we do for dinner tomorrow tomorrow night? And they're like, I don't want to talk about dinner tomorrow night. All I want to do is I want to just get to this meeting. Can you just, can you just not talk about that right now? And so people often are trying to go about their daily business. Um, But the thought that they're having in their mind or the urge that they're having is so distracting and so upsetting that they will try to do almost anything to alleviate it. And so the compulsions naturally follow along because they're, you know, they would like to regain their focus and go about their daily business. So they end up engaging in compulsion. And even if the compulsion only works infrequently. So for people who have this genetic predisposition to OCD, um, they start having obsessions, sometimes triggered by a stressful event. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it can be brought on by something traumatic or sometimes, you know, it just happens. Um, and then the compulsions follow pretty rapidly. So a compulsion, this is the second part of OCD. It's the behavior that the person engages in in order to attempt to get rid of these obsessive thoughts uh, or limit the distress that they're causing. Mm. So for contamination, it might be uh, excessive hand washing or showering mm-hmm. or like cleaning household items to an excessive degree. Mental compulsions you can have for any sort of obsession. So 
compulsive praying or or counting things and then checking which you that's that's one i get yeah. a lot oh really yeah or or did i did i lock the door mm-hmm. is my is my famous like it's a coin flip mm-hmm. when i'm leaving the house whether i will get like halfway down the block and be like now am i sure i locked the door and i'll, I'll come back about 50 percent of the time really yeah um so you can, you can imagine how frustrating it would be if you like if that thought is just constantly oh, coming God. back to yeah. you. Yeah. So you might go back once to check. So someone with OCD, you know, if that is an obsessive thought that they're having, like might go back, you know, five or six times. Mm. Sometimes like it's hard to figure out how the compulsions that you're doing are related to stopping right. the obsessions. My my first ex- uh, experience learning about OCD was in high school where I read um, David Sedaris's books mm. and uh, he has OCD and talks about like, touching things or like making doing body movements or clicking like the 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 compulsions aren't necessarily associated with the obsessions you know a lot of people have have these superstitions or or ocd tendencies but they don't necessarily have ocd because in order to have ocd they have to like severely impact your life right so in in order to give an example of this i thought we'd do another segment another edition of up close and personal with Rebecca's brain. Um, <laughs> Everyone's favorite segment. Where uh, I wanted to give you some real life examples of how this works from from my life. Um, as everybody knows now, uh, I'm an anxious person. Um, it, it looks like talking to my therapist that uh, I have like an element of OCD in my brain. Um, that I definitely had OCD tendencies growing up. Um, right now it's mostly like the generalized anxiety again. Uh, but I'm also like, I've been in therapy for anxiety, like for a while now. And I'm also taking, um, uh, the, a similar sort of medication that like folks with OCD would take. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, even if there was like a stressful life event or something that might trigger those compulsions to come back, like hopefully the, the, the you know, the drugs and the therapy are like you know, tamping that down. Yeah. So that well, and not... you know, ideally, you're just developing other other coping. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's really all any of us are doing. So, Rebecca's OCD. So, um, growing up, I you know worried a lot, uh, and I had two types of obsessive thought patterns related to this. So, the first was um, like a constant feeling that something bad was going to happen. Things like uh, my family is going to be broken apart or someone who I love is going to stop loving me or uh, someone who I care about is going to get hurt. Um, So those were thoughts that I that I um, would constantly have. And then the the other, you know, uh, flavor of obsessions was um, this idea that Dr. Parker was talking about. not uh, contamination in the sense of germs, but like a metaphysical contamination. So this is also like Rebecca between the ages of like um, eight and like 13 was was when it was pro- probably affecting me the most. Mm-hmm. Certain objects would have like bad energy. You know, this, this is completely like not based in anything that I can, you know, really understand, but it would be like, you know, so I, there's a table right in front of me. So I would touch the table and then... I would immediately be able to feel like in my hands if it had bad energy or not. Okay. I'm, I'm just, I'm curious, like, like what did this bad energy feel like? Uh, it just made me immediately feel uncomfortable and uh, like I needed to get rid of it. Seemingly random objects or, or uh, like could be anything? Or? It, it could be anything. It wasn't, it was usually objects that I wasn't familiar with, but sometimes like it 
could even be like a cup in my house, you know, that I picked up or something. I would get this feeling of, of contamination that um, would make me immediately think, like, feel like this is bad. This doesn't feel good. And, yeah, and because this, I have this, this, this in me, something bad is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so uh, those were the obsessive thoughts. And then the compulsions, I had two, you know, strong compulsions to like combat these feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one was a prayer that I would do, which is, which is interesting because this tends to be a very common thing for people uh, with OCD. So um, I grew up in a Protestant household, although this is common for people with OCD um, throughout like, you know, any types of religions and even not religious families. That, um, that was going to be my, my question is, is like, is it, is it sort of more common if you if you are I think you know, probably, a religious yeah, person? Yeah, if you yeah. like, you know, have like a learned sense of morality within this, within like an organized religion, then you're like, oh, okay, if I do that, then I'm going to, you know, offend God. Or if I do that, then I'm going to go to hell or something mm-hmm. like that. Prayer, for some reason, is like a compulsion to combat those thoughts. So like the prayer that I would do was, <laughs> and it's so funny, I, um, I like I hadn't thought about this in like years before I started doing research for this episode. And then I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is what was going on. This was the compulsion that I was constantly having. So it was, um, dear God, I love you so very much. And I love Jesus so very much. Thank you for the wonderful things you and Jesus have done. Amen. And I would have to say that over and over in my head until things felt okay. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting because like... Um, I guess I was maybe like religious growing up, but like, I'm not religious at all now, but sometimes today, like that, that prayer will pop into my head still, even like, you know, when I'm feeling uncomfortable or something, it won't, it won't be that same pattern, that loop, but like, it's definitely like ingrained in my brain somewhere. I find it really interesting too, that it's like, it's like, it's a custom prayer. It's not like, it's not like an, an our father or like, it's, it's like, it's very much like your own thing. I, I I also kind of like how it envisions God and Jesus as sort of like a Batman and Robin duo. (laughs) Um, but 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 mostly that is don't want to yeah just don't want to leave Jesus out. No, you got <laughs> to get Jesus in there. But yeah, that it's not it's not like it's not like a, a Lord's prayer. It's not like an you know a, a Hail Mary. It's it's not sort of something pat. It's something specific to you. Yeah. So uh, I had this compulsion that I would do with my hands, where um, so I touch something I feel like it had bad energy. So then I touch my I'd have to touch something else that had good energy mm. in order to get rid of it. So I'd touch my fingertips, my wrists, the back of the hand, my hands and the front of my hands. And I'd usually have to do this twice. And it's, it's interesting because I tried to do this, like prepping for the show. And I cannot, I used to be able, I used to do it so quickly. And like, now I, I can't do it that fast. This sounds a little bit like, like what's being described here and sort of mimed for me Mm -hmm. is, is sort of, I want to like self patty cake. Yeah. If that, so, if that makes sense. So fingers, wrists, back hand, front of hands, fingers, wrists, back hand, front of hands. And then, so if I did that a couple times and may, sometimes I'd have to do it more, um, then this like strong feeling inside me that something bad was going to happen, something bad was going to happen, you know, would quell. And, mm. you know, I'd feel a little bit better until I touched something else that had better energy. And then I remember it got, um, the worst that it was, was I think when I was in like, fourth or fifth grade and we were in our PE class, Mr. Harris's 
PE class at Linden Elementary School, we were playing some like game with one of the, with one of those like kickballs where we were throwing it you know, around in a circle or something. And every time I caught the ball, I would have to, it, the ball had bad energy. Mm. Every time I caught it, I'd have to put it down and do the hands thing, pick it up, throw it again and do the hands thing. How did Mr. Harris take this? Well, everybody was like, what is going on? Like, why are you doing that? And I, and I was like, it's a game. It's a game. It's this, it's this fun game I'm playing. It's, this, it's the sort of ARG, like the game within the game Constantly, that only you are well, playing. It was like deny, deny, like try and make this seem normal, but like. Were you, were you like, did you, did you try the old like, well, why are you not doing it? <laughs> I think I probably like tried to like t- tell people, I tried to tell people it was fun. Like it was just this fun thing that I was doing. Um, but yeah, it led to like some. Kids are gonna like pick up on that and tease you about it and stuff. And oh yeah, kids, I, kids in PE class, like like a like a fourth grade PE class, will not miss a beat when it comes to like. Yeah. Every child in a fourth grade PE class is like the lion looking for the sick antelope. Mm-hmm. Like. So yeah, so that's like you know sort of an an example of how these obsessions and compulsions are tied. Yeah, and then once you have the obsessive thoughts and you start doing the compulsions or these rituals in order to to get rid of them, things can escalate really quickly. So here's Dr. Parker on that. The more a person compulses or tries to eliminate the obsessions, the more obsessions they struggle with and it can actually mushroom very quickly. And so someone who maybe started or maybe never really had very many obsessions and compulsions can go from not being bothered to by it to being very very impaired really quickly the distress in the obsessions is so extreme that a person feels like they've got to do these compulsions and the more compulsions that they engage in the stronger the obsession gets and it can turn into this self-perpetuating cycle very quickly so we ha- we did two interviews with people whose lives have been affected by OCD. We're going to start with a woman named Mimi Harrison. I went to visit her in her beautiful home in Washington, D.C. to record the interview. And I had a lot of fun talking to her. We Her house was really cool and had all these like little neat vintage knickknacks all over the place. And she um, made me green tea with very fancy honey, which I appreciated. Uh, and we really broke down over anxiety. So to start, um, can you just introduce yourself, tell me your name, and a little bit about who you are? Sure. Hello, my name is Mimi Harrison. I am a 69-year-old jack-of-all-trades. I actually have a a business card that has my phone number on it, and it says hunter-gatherer, because I do lots of stuff. And uh, had a career in publishing, currently working as a cook for a family and a nanny for a baby. So can you tell me about your earliest memory of your obsessive thought patterns? I couldn't have been older than six. I thought I swallowed a fly. I was with my mother at the beauty parlor and I was looking out the window and I saw a fly There were no screens. This is a long time ago in the 50s. And there was this fly buzzing around the window, and then it disappeared. And I suddenly became obsessed with the idea that I had swallowed it. And I became very distressed. And 
we met my father afterwards for lunch, and I had to go because I was ready to throw up. I was so convinced that, and you know, so what if you had swallowed the fly? You know, my parents were very um, reality. You know, they would say, well, what if you did swallow the fly? It, it was not going to kill you. It doesn't matter. But it, it, it obsessed me. It, it gripped me. And when I first went to school, like in first grade, I used to obsess that I had left my lost my school books. So it was sort of started like that. And then those things um, left. They stopped until I was an adolescent when they emerged again. Like a teenager? I was or? a teenager. I, w- I was 14. They were, at first, they were about harm coming to me. I suddenly became uh, obsessed that I had leukemia. A little brother of one of my friends had leukemia and died of leukemia. He was all covered with these horrible bruises, and people sort of whispered about it. And it just stuck in my mind as this terrible thing. Oh, I know what it was when I had... Oh, then my doctor did my blood tests. And as soon as he called me to tell me that I was fine, I thought, oh, now I have leukemia. Like, the tests don't matter. So you, like, told your parents that you thought you had leukemia. How did that conversation go? We had a a cross-country trip that summer, and so that gave me a great opportunity to sit in the back of the car and, and like, obsess and obsess and obsess about stuff. And finally, I remember my my mother saying to me, do we have to take you to a psychiatrist? Which was, like, (gasps) you know, the worst thing if they had done that. I think I might have been spared a lot because, you know, it would have, I think, immediately started ameliorating my symptoms, I think. But this was like 1963. Nobody, there were no psychiatrists where I'm from. I think my parents thought that they could just sort of um, scold me out of it, you know. But then my next thought was that I wish my mother would get cancer. Then the thoughts turned to harming other people. And that really freaked me out. So you get a thought like, you know, you have so many thoughts every day. And one one thought is maybe you're angry at your mom or something. And you're like, oh, I wish she would get cancer. You know, a very passing thought, maybe something you wouldn't like focus on otherwise. And then you just starts you start ruminating on it or. Well, to me, it it almost felt like a, a physical thing. It's like your mind is sticky. And it's like double-sided tape or something. And and these thoughts come in, and you can't control, you know, it's like, don't think about an elephant, okay? Well, now you're going to think about an elephant. And um, I was afraid I was going to say things, say profanities. I was on stage a lot in high school, and I thought I was going to blurt something out, you know, uh, obscene. I also want to I want to touch back just real quickly on this idea of of parents threatening to take someone to a psychiatrist. Yeah. For for me it's like is that a threat? It's like the idea that like if like if you broke your rib and your parents would like threaten you to take threaten to take you to the doctor if you didn't stop being such a pussy about your broken rib. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's, it's just a, it's an example of like the ways in which like there's stigma associated with yeah. mental illness and like it you know it's not equated to to you know physical problems in the same way. Yeah, part of part of me wants to wants to go like, "Oh, it's so weird that that would be like the case in 1963." And then I realize, "Oh, it's it was a, the case of, it's yeah. a Definitely not weird that it was ca- the case in 1963, yeah. and B, definitely still the case. Exactly, yeah. 
Mimi's obsessions varied, but often they were related to impulse control. So like in her school play, worrying that she was going to curse on stage or say something awful. Um, and then, or, or do something awful to herself or to somebody else. And it followed her throughout her adult life. After I graduated from college, my first job was um, working at Glamour magazine as assistant to the features editor. And my job was, part of my job, was to write rejection letters to people who sent in uh, pitched ideas or sent in manuscripts. And I immediately started obsessing that I was typing obscenities into the, these little letters that I had to write. And it got to the point where I had to bring them home and my boyfriend had to read them at night. And then, can, you know, to make sure, to check. It's all about checking. She also had this obsessive thought pattern that she was going to physically hurt someone. So, I mean, I had different themes. There was the arson theme. There was telling people, there was poisoning, of course. There was telling people that they should commit suicide. You were afraid that you had told somebody that? Well, or? that I was like giving signals to people that they should kill themselves. I've had like three times in my life when I've been sort of not functioning because of this. And then... And what, what did it look like that when you weren't functioning at that point? Couldn't do anything. I couldn't read anything. I couldn't write anything. I couldn't work. Just because the, the thoughts were so overwhelming? I was so anxious that I sort of couldn't function. You know, I, I was sort of inert. We were in Europe. <laughs> My husband and I, this is 1973. And we took the France, which was the largest ocean liner in the world, to France. And it was the last crossing. I mean, anything you wanted to eat, anything you wanted, it was fabulous. It was six days at sea. I'm there thinking I'm throwing people overboard. <laughs> I feel like that's the sort of thing you would know if you were doing. I know, I know, right? Like, I, I mean, it's interesting because she knew, like, she she was conscious the entire time that she wasn't doing it. Right. But the thoughts just still kept coming, you know? It, it's like so, it was two minds that were existing inside. Like she, she, the entire time she knew like, okay, yeah, I'm not killing anybody. I'm not like saying obscenities. I'm not, you know, throwing people overboard. Right. Um, and yet uh, she was still having the thoughts that but were consuming her and giving her intense anxiety. Right. And I thought, oh, that lady, I haven't seen her again. Boy, I, you would have heard the splash. So then we embarked. We were away for several months backpacking through Europe. Everywhere I went, I thought I was murdering people <laughs> or doing something terrible. And finally, by the time we got to London to catch our flight back in December, I was convinced that I could make the plane crash, like just with my thoughts. Wow, that's much, man. Yeah, so, so she had different types of compulsions that she developed in order to... I don't want to say she developed because you know, she, she wasn't in control of them. They just, you know, appeared um, in order to deal with it. So she yeah, also... Yeah, she, she had different types of compulsions. It's, yeah. It's part and parcel of, of this condition, yeah. I had to touch things, and if I touch this, and if I touch that three times, and I started praying. When I was a little girl, I said my prayers every night. I'm Jewish, so I said uh, this prayer called the Shema. And, and then I said, God bless mommy and daddy. And then all these people came on. I remember the night the Korean War ended. And 
my parents sat me down and they said, tonight in your prayers, you have to say, keep the war over. And I said, okay. By the, I was still saying this when I was 28 years old, saying this every night to myself and keep the war over. I mean, Vietnam's going on at this point and I'm just still saying this. And, I, and then before I went to sleep, I had to say good. I would say the prayer to myself, but then I would say out loud, good, and my husband would say, okay. <laughs> and then I could fall. One night I decided, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to say it. And I didn't go to sleep until like four in the morning. I was up all night, and then I just said to myself, good, and I could fall asleep. So all the compulsions, you know, were to negate the bad thoughts. So sometimes she would literally have to say things like not or no to, to get rid of the thoughts. Or she told me she would, um, she went through this phase where she needed to find the letters N and O around her in order to stop the thoughts. Yeah, so she, she eventually, she confided in her sister-in-law, who was a therapist, uh, about what was going on with her, who recommended a psychoanalyst for her to see in New York because, you know, it was New York in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, right now I feel like cognitive behavioral therapy is, is very popular for OCD. Um, but See, this is why we recommend people seeing treatment. We do not threaten people with the, with the punishment of treatment. Yes, yeah. So, so she started talk therapy, which seemed to really help for her. You know, she, she was talking about her problems openly for the first time. Um, and it, it seemed to go away, but then it would pop, pop back up again. Um, as with, these things do. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and it would get, uh, you know, extra awful when there was a stressful life event. Right after I married the second time, what happened was I had a miscarriage. That was huge shock. That was an enormous psychological and physical. I was crushed and I really went down the rabbit hole. And this husband was not, it wasn't as easy for him. He didn't know that I had OCD. He knew that I had taken psychotropic drugs for something and, and uh, you know, do you want to know why? No, I don't want to know why. He just didn't want to talk about this kind of thing. And I, I feel for him, you know, it's not easy. And suddenly this woman who he loved is like, you know, touching things five times and, Oh, turning the lights on and off and the lights on and flipping back and forth and back and forth and magazines and oh and I, I was like shaking my head like that and I remember we went to a movie with friends one night and I going like this just like no 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 shaking my head and he like pulled me out of my seat and popped me in his seat and took my seat so that our friends wouldn't know and um yeah it was really bad but <laughs> It never turned into like, thank God, like a germ thing with me though. That's one thing that's never happened. Emily, um, the other person that I spoke with, did have a germ thing. We decided together to change her name for this. Uh, I, I really like naming people now. This is my new favorite thing, so <laughs> I decided on the name Emily. Uh, yeah, so we're keeping her anonymous, uh, but I went to speak with her in her uh, home in Midtown Manhattan, so you can maybe hear some of the traffic sounds outside. But I started my conversation with her by asking her to describe her obsessive thoughts. It always 
it always had to do with hygiene. It always had to do with my cleanliness and other people's germs. So it was the kind of classic things that people like make fun of in TV shows and stuff where it's like, you know, you wash your hands a million times or you're afraid of somebody sneezing and every sniffle that anybody let out, um, you know, every pole I had to touch or stairwell or banister, like each one of those things stayed in my mind until I could get to a sink to wash my hands next. People, again, play off this idea of OCD as just like a kind of funny thing. But to me, it was like washing your hands 17 times was the most important thing that I could do. And I couldn't leave the bathroom until I had done it 17 times. And it didn't matter how long it took me to do those things. Um, it was it was a ritual that mattered. And if I didn't do it, I did not feel clean. Do you, do you remember why 17 times? Was 17 like tied to something for you? I... I remember that it progressed over time. It never ended up on 17 because 17 had a special meaning. I remember that it used to be like I would wash my hands like four or five times, but then I would do it just an extra time just to be safe. And then I would do seven times just to like as a little bit extra. And then it would just keep growing. I remember taking like an hour and a half to two hours just to like get ready. And like an hour and a half of that would just be showering. And it was particularly evident, I think it really started irritating my parents when we went away on vacations. I remember being in Sweden and we were sharing an apartment with one bathroom and there was limited hot water. And so everybody in my family showers in the morning and I was the first one to go. There I am and they're pounding down the door and I'm you know, thinking to myself, I can't go any faster. Um, so in talking with your therapist, did you guys, were you able to like pinpoint, was there something that triggered this, the, the escalation of these thoughts? So I think, you know, it had to have been about like growing up and puberty and things like that. And there was no particular reason for it. And, you know, I didn't grow up in an environment where there was like shame or stigma per se, but you know, all of this stuff about like hygiene and cleanliness and that had to have tied into the fact that like 14, 15, 16, you're really like going through your maturity phase. And, um, and I think that's really scary for a lot of people. But I think for me, the way to combat the fear was to find comfort through ritual. So I'm wondering like how it affected you socially. I mean, I remember having to, to show up to school late a lot because I would be stuck doing my rituals and all of my friends just thought that I was just slacking off. Yeah, it impacted a lot. It impacted, you know, my ability to go out to social functions. It impacted my ability to date or to want to date and be close to people. So, okay, I, I feel like I need I, I, I need to know that this has sort of a happy ending. How is Emily doing yeah. now? So both Mimi and Emily are doing very well right now. Um, the, these disorders, you know, you can't cure them, um, but uh, they've... Uh, learn to manage them very well so that they don't interfere with what they want to do with their lives. Um, but before we address the specific treatments that worked for both of them and different things worked for each person, uh, I wanted to check back in with our mental health professional, Dr. Parker at the Reed Center, about how she typically goes about treating her patients. So she's going to talk about um, cognitive behavioral therapy a little bit. So she's going to reference CBT, uh, which is evidence-based therapy, which we have talked about, you know. I was going to say, how many how many episodes until we don't have to first reference CBT anymore? So, so yeah, we talked about I it. I feel like we're coming up on it. <laughs> a little bit in... Um, uh, in the in the spider show, the the first episode we were talking about right. phobias. I, I, here's the, here's the actual question: uh -huh. Have we done an episode where we don't talk about CBT? It's, it's definitely become like a, a one of the you know gold standards for anxiety treatment. It's today. it's the new hotness, but it works differently for each disorder. Right. So here's uh, 
Dr. Parker talking about how she treats her patients with OCD. What is most helpful for the anxiety is stopping the compulsions. I think of the compulsions almost as like the oxygen supply for the obsessions. And if you cut off the compulsions, the obsessions eventually die off. It doesn't mean they disappear altogether, but they certainly decrease in number and intensity, and it's very helpful. And so we look at the nature of the obsessions that a person's having, and we essentially try to figure out, all right, what are the things that bring up fear for you? And can we design the basically exercises, like these exercises where we take a small chunk of the anxiety or fear, and we practice confronting that anxiety or fear, just like a small chunk of it over and over and over again. Um, and then when you're ready, then we move up to the next like chunk, the most difficult chunk in the hierarchy. And then while we're doing that, we also help people stop ritualizing. As, as I was saying before, if people can stop ritualizing, it really cuts off the oxygen supply for the obsessions. And so when they stop ritualizing, they often find that their suffering is greatly decreased. Medication can be really helpful. Many of the people who we work with and provide CBT to also take medication. And so when someone is really finds uh, when they find that their OCD is really impairing their life we generally encourage people at least to consider going on medication because it can be very helpful so there's that one two punch for OCD that's cognitive behavioral therapy and medication uh, and the medication is usually an SSRI or a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor uh, which you know chemically adjusts serotonin levels in your brain um, do, you, do you have maybe an, an, an example of what one of those? One sure, of like of those? Prozac is probably one that people are, are familiar with right. for depression. Yeah. So th- that's the approach that Emily went with was the CBT and the medication. Although she was a teenager when she first started treatment for OCD and it wasn't really her choice. They had the very best intentions, but I did not go voluntarily. <laughs> they made the appointment. So I remember when they approached me about it and By the way, I've been going to therapy since I was in like the second grade for separation anxiety. I remember just being like really offended and really freaked out um, because I kind of knew the drill. You have to like talk about your problems and your feelings. And also it came to subjects that were like pretty sensitive, like hygiene and health and cleanliness. Like those are topics that you don't want to sit down and talk to another human being about. It's like embarrassing enough. And again, when you're a teen, like everything's embarrassing, especially topics around your hygiene and, you know, and on all of those things. Your body and puberty and all of those things. Exactly. So I didn't like want to have to look at her face and I didn't want to have to recount things for her. So the way that I found around that was I just took a journal and I wrote out explicitly every single process um, that I had been doing and explained the thought process behind it and just handed her a journal and said like, this is it. This is this. This is why they brought me here, um, because it meant that I didn't have to narrate it, but I could pass along the information she probably needed to know. So I journaled it all out for her, and that was sort of the way I introduced myself to my therapist. Did you? Did she start you on medication um, immediately? And uh, what did the process of finding a medication that worked look like for you? So I had a therapist, and I had a psychiatrist who was recommended by the therapist. They told me straight out the bat that medication was going to help a lot with the process. So the person who was prescribing my medication when I first started treatment gave me Luvox or Fluvoxamine, which is kind of it's kind of known as like the standard for OCD care, I feel like. Um, but I remember going on it and feeling absolutely no different and being tasked by my therapist to do all of these different exposure therapies at home and feeling just as horrible as if I wasn't on the meds at all. 
you know, a lot of these SSRIs are tied with weight gain. And the one that I was taking um, basically caused the same thing with me. So I went from being somebody before treatment who probably had like 20 or so pounds to lose to gaining another 60 pounds after being on Luvox for a year. So, you know, here I am now, like, you know, 17, 18 years old with crippling OCD, you know, so crippling that I wasn't sure I was going to be able to go to college and like 60 pounds heavier, um, which is a really, a really shitty place to be um, because you already are grappling with, you know, mental health issues. And now you've got to worry all about the, you know, the things that you're already self-conscious about as a teen anyway, which is like looking good. But now it's not only looking good, it's like, you know, well, now I'm really overweight. Were you able to switch to something that had uh, side effects that weren't as uh, dramatic for you? So I tapered off the Luvox. After I realized I had gained that much weight, I really didn't want to be on it. One of the things that helped a couple years later was um, one of my parents had been on citalopram, which is another SSRI, but, but they had tolerated it really, really well. And so I kind of wanted to explore that just thinking, you know, maybe my genetics, with my genetics that are shared, I'll have a similar experience. And that's worked really, really well for me and hasn't caused weight gain or any other of the issues that Luvox did. One of the things I recall now, having been on Luvox, was I also got a mild version of what's called Alice in Wonderland syndrome, which is really, really trippy sounding condition. I would wake up in the morning and objects would like, all of a sudden look really big and then look really far away. Fuck. I, so I used to have that all the time when I was a child. It wasn't so much that as I felt small and, yeah. and like shrunken, yep. uh, but it was not, I wasn't on medication. So it must be like some sort of weird, similar brain chemistry thing. Yeah. And it was the trippiest sensation. And I remember saying to my therapist, you know, I don't, I don't know if I should be on something that's causing this. So they slowly tapered me down. Yeah, uh, when I switched to um, citalopram, I didn't have any of those same side effects. So, um, you know, that's not to say that Luvox won't work for other people, um, but it's certainly, you know, the alchemy of, <laughs> of trying to find the right treatment for you is, is a long and winding road, and it really is individualized. Things don't work for some people, and they work great for others. Yeah. So you ended up working with this therapist uh, off of the medication, so you, you uh, described it as exposure therapy, but which is under the umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, so can you tell me about some of the exercises that you worked on with her? Yeah, sure. So I went through two therapists in my time having OCD. I think the first one really primed me up to understand what exposure therapy was. And then there was just a period of time where like her suggestions and her homework to go and do this exposure therapy just stopped working. I talked to my parents about that and... Um, we actually ended up going to Columbia. They have this really excellent um, group of people who deals specifically with OCD. And I found my other therapist who I credit with like giving me my life back, basically. Her plan was not to sort of make you break a ritual or like take one away from a hand wash or whatever and kind of like slowly go down. She wanted to take you to your most uncomfortable and have you show yourself that like even if you did something that was completely different and like worse and upsetting and kind of took you close to a place where you were actually worried about getting sick that you would still be fine it would be like you can't shower for a day or you can't shower for two days it was really like if you do something completely counterintuitive to you know your obsessions and compulsions or even like what normal people do in their day-to-day -day, like 
you know, hand washing and showering and things like that, it's still not going to, still not going to kill you. How did you start, you know, noticing a, a difference, a change? There was a time when I really started to get better when I wasn't seeing a therapist. So I was working at this job as a PA and I had to be there at 6.45 in the morning and I would leave at 8 p.m. So I was going to have to use the bathroom somewhere. So I had to find a way to get over my fear of public restrooms, right? The job also made me do dishes. So here I am not wanting to even like hold another person's hand and instead I've got the forks that were in their mouths covered in old food and I'm wearing like, you know, rubber gloves scrubbing, scrubbing food off plates. But I knew that I couldn't do this job unless I did it. So I had to find a way. I either had to resign myself to the fact that I was going to get fired and that I couldn't do this job in advance, or I had to find another way to cope with it. And, you know, there, the list just went on and on. The more jobs that I did, the more I had to sort of find ways that would quell and quiet my mind, um, even though it, it made me really uncomfortable. And I think that was the biggest motivation for me. I mean, you have to, when you do these treatments, you have to be motivated to do them. And that can come from all sorts of places. So Mimi, the 69-year-old jack-of-all-trades, she didn't do CBT. Uh, she did a lot of talk therapy. And she had a similar experience to Emily where she gained a lot of weight on Paxil. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she found another SSRI that she says worked wonders for her. Even if they show that like SSRIs cause dementia or Lou Gehrig's disease, I don't care. I, they, gave me, they gave me back quiet mm-hmm. in my life. And that's all I care about. Um, and to be clear, SSRIs have not been linked to those diseases. <laughs> yeah, we, feel like we don't want to throw SSRIs under yeah. the bus here. So I asked her if she has any advice for listeners who, you know, are, are listening and thinking maybe they do have OCD. Well, I think a lot of people have tendencies toward OCD. And I mean, I don't think it's that uncommon. I think it's really common. But if you find that it's taking up your time, you know, if it's distracting you from your job or whatever gives you pleasure, I really, really, really encourage people to get, treat, to get help. And if you have a child, the best way to help your kid is to not be afraid of it. It's sometimes it's really frightening. Like if I ever told my parents the things that went on in my mind, that you know, understandably, they would be really frightened. But you, you know, you're the rock for your child, and be calm, and um, don't scold. They can't help it. So I also asked Emily for her advice for folks with loved ones or partners with OCD. Please God be patient with them because they are really trying, and most of the time they're really struggling. You know, I think as much as you can create, especially if you're a loved one, as much as you can create a stigma-free atmosphere around going to therapy and the fact that you're going to be there when people are going through treatment, even when it gets really hard, I think that's the most important. And it may be hard not to be biased or to think that what they're doing, you know, isn't totally bizarre, but there's rhyme and reason in their head and, you know, you love them, so, so just be there. I wanted to end with something that Mimi said that, that really stuck with me about OCD. I don't consider it a mental illness. It's a neurological condition. You know, it's the way you're wired. And I think that personally, I don't like the term mental illness because I think that's, it's all your neurochemistry and the structures in your brain. And, um, you know, this is, this just how your wiring is. I told Emily that Mimi said this and Mm. she felt really similarly. Um, I've been struggling with this too. Like, 
whether or not to use the term mental illness because the word illness makes it seem like you're like feeble or incapable of functioning or, you know, and and sometimes it can be debilitating, but it's like such a common thing for people to have a psychological disorder to be like, you know, at some point in their life to be dealing with this and like, you know, you, you can manage it and like, it's not going to be a debilitating thing necessarily. And and I think, I think if if, you, you know, I think if you listen to the show, you'll, you'll hear us try and talk about things more, you know, in, in terms of, you know, conditions and, yeah. and things that people are dealing with. Cause it is something that we, we want to be, you know, it's illness really does have that connotation that a, a lot of these things that people are dealing with do not deserve and, and, and haven't earned. So do you think like, I'm wondering if I should embrace it and try and break the stigma, you know, like people have done with like, like I'm thinking like queer, or try and new campaign for a new name. I was thinking like maybe brain weirdness or like something <laughs> like that. You know what? I, I think my, my advice would be to sort of consult the the existing sort of neuroatypical community that, yeah. that I, I know enough about to know that it is out there mm-hmm. and not enough to in in any way sort of sort of speak for people who who know a lot more about this than yeah. I do. Um, and I think that's maybe something we should talk about in a future yeah, episode. I'm curious if you're a listener and you have thoughts on like the term mental illness and whether or not you think it's something that can be embraced and reclaimed, or if you like hate the word and want to use a different word, please go to the website and contact us and, and, and let us know what you think. Yeah, um, get in touch. We'd, we'd love to hear from you if, if we're doing this right, if we're doing this poorly, if, yeah. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. And please leave us a review. It matters for some reason so much to iTunes. It matters a ton. Yeah. And it's on, on Apple Podcasts now. Oh, iTunes it's on is, iTunes iTunes anymore. is a thing, of, a thing of the past for podcasting. So, and check out the website for additional content grouppodcast.com. I'm going to be posting a link to uh, a piece on the Washington Post that Mimi wrote about her experience with OCD. Thank you to Faith Rusk for being the best human and helping out with research for the show. Um, Can confirm. (laughs) The music in the episode is by The Losers. Check out Ian's podcast, Menagerie, on stories of animals and how humans interact with them. Yeah, please do. Menageriepodcast.com. And we'll talk to you again in the month. But in the meantime, get some rest. Be kind to yourself. Everything is going to be okay. If I keep the ice cube trays filled, no one will die. As long as I clench my fists at odd intervals, then the darkness within me won't force me to do anything inappropriately violent or sexual at dinner parties. As long as I keep humming a tune, I won't turn gay. (laughs) It can't get you if you're singing a song.